face the barren waste without the taste of water. Cool water. Old Dan and I with throats burned dry and souls that cry for water. One of our favorite topics on this program is California's water politics. We think it no secret that in politics, money and power are interrelated. We also think that here in the Golden State, it is money and water that generally mean the same thing. We're definitely not alone in this thinking. Emmy Award-winning director Marina Zenovich and executive producer Alex Gibney have produced a documentary for the National Geographic Channel we are downright enthusiastic about. It is titled, Water and Power, A California Heist and details the story of backroom deals that, contrary to what some think, are not a thing of generations past. In fact, as detailed in this powerful film, a corrupt system has for the past 20 years continued to favor large agricultural water users over the rest of us. One of the shadiest examples of this is the Kern Water Bank, through which large quantities of water have been taken from public control and placed in private hands. As documented by Director Zenovich, Environmentalist attorneys like Adam Keats have fought to regain public control of what is, after all, a public resource. Water and Power, a California heist, was an official selection of the 2017 Sundance Film Festival. It will air on the National Geographic Channel March 14th at 9 p.m. We advise you to tune in on that date as you will surely want to do so after hearing from our guests today. Joining us now are documentarian Marina Zenovich and attorney Adam Keats. Welcome both of you to Radio Parallax. Thanks so much. Thanks, Doug. Marina, I, I was impressed by your, your very effective use of footage from Roman Polanski's Chinatown. Uh, and you've, in fact, made award-winning films about Mr. Polanski. So I guess my first question is, is, did that classic 1974 film lead you to tackle the continuing sad tale of water in California? Chinatown is one of my favorite movies of all time. And when Alex Gibney came to me, he, he told me that this movie was Chinatown, the documentary. <laughs> so, yes. I, I can't seem to get away from Mr. Polanski or uh, California and the story of water. Well, your executive producer, Alex Gibney, we had the pleasure of speaking with him many years ago. He's done many fine documentaries looking at, I guess you'd say, the abuses of power. And Marina, you've certainly showed that California's water problems are yet another example of that. Can you talk a little bit about how dire things can be for California's uh, water have-nots? As a documentary filmmaker, you kind of are immersed in worlds that you don't necessarily know anything about. And it was fascinating for me to go to uh, parts of Central California and see that there are people that don't have water. I mean, it was, it was frankly shocking and very upsetting. I was interested in showing this world that I really knew nothing about coming into it and meeting people like Mark Arax, the former journalist for the LA Times, who's writing a book about the water wars, and Adam Keats, who is involved in the legal battle with the Monterey Amendments. I mean, it was fascinating to follow them and see what was really going on. Well, your documentary, it shows again and again how water delivery systems favor agricultural corporations. It was just great how you could illustrate on film how people are trying to use drinking water that's foul. Meanwhile, flowing through their community is fresh, clean water to, to irrigate crops. And I guess that just summarizes um, so much about what's wrong with our water deliveries. I think that's exactly right, um, Doug. You know, one, that, one of the stats that I think is fascinating is that 
California added 100,000 acres of almond trees between 2014 and 2015 in the height of the drought. I mean, when, when you know, cities and residents and towns and businesses are being asked to cut back, they were rapaciously planting a, a tree crop that requires tremendous amounts of water. It's unbelievable. Well, Adam, one of the things that surprised me I didn't know enough about was how in the film you show, I guess Marina more properly shows, how 20 years ago a deal was cut among competing water interests that set the stage for what has followed ever since. I know this is near and dear to you. Adam, can you, can you maybe please explain what amendments to California water laws were made at meetings in Monterey back in 1994 and then what followed from that? Yeah, what the amendments were were actually to the long-term contracts for the operation of the state water project. So the state water project is our big giant canal that brings the water from the north down to the south. It was developed and built in the 60s with a certain set of promises about how the water would be distributed and some checks and balances and controls to make sure that it would be fair and it would be um, equitable and it would be sustainable. And what happened between the 60s and the 90s was that our perspective changed in this country, that power consolidated, that money got more powerful than it was even back then, and that uh, people lost the, the, the motivation of either equitable or sustainable distribution. All they cared about was the profit. So they, they got together in the 90s and rewrote those contracts to get rid of those controls that made it equitable and sustainable. And, and that, it's a kind of a broad 50,000-foot perspective, but I think it's a very accurate way of describing arcane contractual amendments, which are very hard to describe if you get into details. Yeah, so I think people have to probably watch the film to see some, some more of those details. But personally, I was amazed to learn the extent of this current water bank's uh, power, and I know that's, that's, that's also a complicated topic, uh, but can one of you briefly outline uh, what it does? And I know, Adam, you've worked to fight against the control of that water bank. What does it do in theory, and what does it do in practice? Kern Water Bank is a giant aquifer. Um, it's, an, it's a relatively empty aquifer. It had been depleted of its water uh, sources back in you know, the last 100 years or so. And it has an ability with the soils above it to be able to, you can percolate water into the aquifer with relative ease. So it makes it what they call it a water bank, meaning you can spread water out on the ground in these big basins that you dig out, and the water will percolate down and recharge the aquifer. It's essentially an underground reservoir massive. It's a huge, huge capacity, a million acre feet or something like that. It's, it's, a, it's one of the biggest in the world. I think it's about 20-25% of the size of Shasta Lake, which is one of the biggest reservoirs in the state. This is a very large water storage facility, and it's located south of the Delta, which in terms of our state water infrastructure is a very valuable spot to be storing water for distribution throughout the southern half of the state. And so what happened with the Monterey Amendments and with the with this whole deal in the 90s is they gave that water bank the land and the technology and the facilities they had built, that the state had built and invested money in, they gave it to local Kern County water agencies that were dominated, controlled, and owned by private agribusiness, and primarily one interest, the Stuart and Linda Resnick, uh, owned what's now called the Wonderful Companies. We're, we're talking about privatization of a essential statewide piece of our water infrastructure. Those names, Stuart and Linda Resnick, are certainly important to, the, to this documentary. And I'd, I'd ask you, Marina, about them. They, I guess they refused to be interviewed for the film, but the share of California's water that their Paramount Farming Company secures will, will no doubt surprise a lot of people. Can you outline just how much water they commandeer among that 80% of California's water that is already going to agriculture? 
Like, I'm sorry, it's really hard to calculate exactly how much they commandeer, but I, what I can tell you is a couple of things, is that Kern County is one of the largest tree, tree nut growers in the state, and the other counties around them make up the five top almond and pistachio growers in the state. Those counties are overwhelmingly dominated by the Resnick interests, but they diffuse them and distribute them in a way that makes it hard to actually quantify. And we had reached out to them um, several times uh, through their PR department, asking them to be in the film, and they uh, didn't want to partake. So, you know, we we focus on different water uh, brokers, if you will, but we, we were hoping that they would talk to us, yeah. but, you know, it didn't happen. Well, I guess one reason they may not want to talk to you is that the, the notorious buying low and selling high tendencies of that water bank. It's one of the bigger outrages I thought in your documentary. I guess the rhetorical question is, how did the state allow that to happen? But the more direct question is, has, has that been stopped completely? It stopped partly out of outrage because of journalists, uh, you know, sort of lit into it and discovered it. And also because the, 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 I think someone realized the numbers weren't working out finally. After about five years of the Resnicks profiting wildly off of this thing, um, so someone realized this wasn't this wasn't going the way they wanted it to be going, and they stopped it. The infrastructure for it and the potential for it being started up again is all still there, though. They're just not actively wheeling and dealing the water anymore the same way. But there are people throughout the state, be it journalists or lawyers like Adam, journalists like Mark Arax or, or Lois Henry from the Bakersfield Californian, who are, you know, following this. And there are uh, sources who are, you know, everyone's trying to work together to do the right thing, right? Yeah, yeah. But, but, I, but I would say also, like, this environmental water account that's featured in the movie, which is the hard evidence of this type of profiteering that's happened in the last 10, 15 years of the current water bank, it is absolutely the goal in the, in the design of the water brokers and the, and the agribusiness that's controlling the water is to is to engage in the same type of wheeling and dealing that they were doing then. And there is legislation is being proposed, is proposed once again in this session, yeah. facilitate transfers. Whenever you see Governor Brown talk about this and you see people talk about, oh let's have we're gonna this legislation is going to facilitate transfers, water transfers. That is code words for water trading and for water marketplaces. That's code words for privatization of water. Transfers are an enemy to a functioning balanced, equitable, ecosystem-based distribution of water. Transfers are facilitators of a marketplace uh, design. Yeah, the documentary talks a little bit, uh, quite a bit about that. I think it's going to surprise a lot of people to know that, uh, that some of these practices of pumping and also moving water, it, it, it's kind of unclear which laws or if any laws are being broken. And meanwhile, wells are going dry, small operations are going belly up, and whole towns are without municipal water supplies. Uh, it would seem that we need some better and enforceable laws. Do you think we can get them? Well, hopefully the movie will help start dialogue. Yes, indeed. We are speaking with film documentarian Marina Zenovich and environmentalist attorney Adam Keats. Their documentary is titled Water and Power, A California Heist. For my money, maybe the thing I, I thought most upsetting about Water and Power, A California Heist was the fact that there is now a plan to control California's groundwater, which has been sort of indiscriminate up till now in the pumping, uh, it's finally being set up, but it's going to take literally decades to phase it in. And meanwhile, hedge funds and the like are buying land that they plan to irrigate by just pumping groundwater while they can. It's a terrible topic. Can both of you comment on that? 
there's a great line in the movie uh, when Tony Rossman, a leading environmental lawyer, basically says, you know, I was advised early in my career never to underestimate the power of greed. <laughs> I made this movie. I've put it together with a team of producers, cinematographers, editors, uh, researchers, with the help of people like Adam, Mark Arax, everyone I interviewed. And I have to tell you, every time I watch it, it's really sobering. It's a film that really makes people angry, and I think it all comes down to greed. How much is enough? It's just astounding to me. People buying up this land and taking the water, and it's so upsetting. We've had an unregulated groundwater regime here in California forever, and it's had disastrous consequences. But those consequences are generally, historically, have been localized. If you deplete your reservoir, your aquifer, you're going to suffer consequences uh, with reduced amount of water or, you know, subsidence or whatever. What we're seeing now, well, the film talks about this, I think, really wonderfully in Paso Robles, is exporting those harms. So going to someplace else and taking their groundwater and then shipping it to some other place so the people in Paso Robles will suffer the consequences, but the people in wherever the water gets sold to, Santa Barbara or L.A. or Kern County, they don't have the subsidence problems. Or, you know, they have their own subsidence. They're already suffering it from it. Now they're just exporting their own problems someplace else. Well, something that I think that may also surprise uh, uh, viewers in seeing your documentary is that we sort of expect that large projects are supposed to have environmental impact reports, but uh, this water bank and probably some other things that have been done by water interests uh, uh, took that job out of the hands of out of the California Department of Water Resources. And I guess that's a glaring example of what, what has to be of an abuse of power. Absolutely. I mean, that, that's, the, that's their first fatal problem in the 90s, and that's what, re, that's what resulted in the 2000 appellate decision that reversed that environmental review. That was the main basis for that. It took them 10 years to do the second round of environmental review, and that's what I sued on, my group sued on in 2010. And then we won that lawsuit on that issue regarding the current water bank in 2014, and they took another two years to do the third round of environmental review, and it still wasn't sufficient. They still ignored the impacts. They still tried to shine the thing on, and we've had to file a third lawsuit on that latest environmental review. So we're still litigating over just trying to get them to actually um, come to terms with the actual environmental impacts of what it means to operate, to give a state-run, state-built water bank facility um, over to private interests that have a short-term profit goal. What does it mean to convert, you know, hundreds of thousands of acres of vegetable crops to almonds? What's it mean for our water? What's it mean for our economy? What's it mean for the land and the plants and everything else around it and the workers? You know, what does this mean? Uh, they, they, they refuse to talk about that. Well, I'm certainly glad the documentary, uh, again, hits home on, on the idea that one almond is a gallon of water. People don't, don't necessarily realize that. There's a funny moment or two in the film. One for me came when ABC News was interviewing Jerry Brown, and he was defending the ag water interest by noting that, hey, they're not watering lawns or taking long showers, as if lawns or showers with the general public were the problem. And I would ask either of you to comment on, on this approach to water conservation, where we're demanding citizens conserve, but not, say, you know, the Resnicks. This got out a little bit. People should be reminded of it constantly. Agriculture consumes 80% of the surface water in the state of California. And Jerry Brown's directive last year, the year before last, only focused on that 20% that is consumed by people and businesses, non-agriculture. We have plenty of water in this state for our population. Population growth is not the problem. Environmentally, that's an, that's an issue on a lot of levels. But in California, we have water for all the people in the state. It's just how we, how we decide to distribute that water. And if we want to grow almonds and pistachios, 
we are making decisions to not give water to people. And that has a moral component to it. And the film, I think, does a really good job of showing that moral harm, that moral offense of, of making that kind of decision. And Jerry Brown needs to recognize that he's making that decision when he issues those directives. This is not just free market capitalism and, and, and forces beyond our control. These are decisions being made by government to favor one use of water over another. And those of us who aren't growing almonds and making, you know, getting rich off of them think that that's an incorrect decision. This film focuses on drought and what that means to a, to a large extent. At one point, the film shows how in 1991, Tom Brokaw and the news media were going on and on about California's unprecedented drought, the worst in the last 50 years, etc. But now we're 25 years on and we've ha- we're having a worse drought. This maybe isn't a, it's an unfair question, but some people speculate that climate change may leave California drier than we even are now. you have any thoughts on that? All we know right now about what's going to happen with our water supply in California is that it's going to get weirder and weirder and weirder. But again, there's a big buffer. If you think about that 80% of water being used by agriculture, there is a buffer. We have a lot of capacity in the state. There's a very wet part of the state. I have a lot of confidence we can weather the upcoming storm if we recognize that we need to be distributing our water more, more sustainably and more equitably. I have a couple final questions for both of you. I'd like to ask you first, Marina. Um, two-parter. Uh, first part, what, what did you find most concerning about this whole issue of California's water heist? And then the second part of that is, what would you like to see changed? It goes back to greed for me. I guess if you're not a greedy person in general, when you see the level of greed in the world, it's, it's, it's sobering. What would I like to see changed? I think more transparency. Someone I interviewed said that the Monterey Amendment meetings never could have taken place in public. But I think the time has come for more transparency in, in government. And hopefully, seeing the film, people will realize that. And in terms of changing something, I'd, I'd ask you, Adam, as well, what, what do you think in a practical sense we could, can be done or what should be done? In a very practical sense, I really think we need to return the State Water Project back to its original commitment toward a sustainable and equitable system. It's a state-run, state-owned public facility. It should be run as such, not as the personal bank account of a couple of oligarchs, a couple of industrial agriculture giants. That would be a huge difference. And then on a more systemic level, I think that we need to reduce the influence of money in politics. One of the problems with this is that our political system is based on bribes and financial influence. It's legalized bribery, and that results in bad decision-making. We need to fix that problem. The Department of Water Resources is the most captured and corrupt agency in state government. It is run by and for the people that get the water. It's not run by and for the people of the state of California. Well, I certainly think the documentary illustrates that pretty effectively. It does. They do a great job in that. The film is Water and Power, A California Heist. You may have caught it at the Crocker Art Museum earlier this week. If not, don't worry. It will air on the National Geographic Channel on March 14th at 9 p.m. We've been speaking with the documentary's director, Marina Zenovich, as well as environmental attorney, Adam Keats, who is featured in the film. I certainly want to say thanks to both of you for not only speaking with us, but for your efforts in this most worthy cause. Oh, thanks so much. Yeah, thank you very much, Doug. Appreciate it. And with the dawn I'll wake and yawn and carry on to water All right, we've got about uh, seven or eight minutes, I think, left to us on today's program. Since we're talking about water and the environment and (laughs) the abuse of political power, 
We probably should take a look at the March 5th San Francisco Chronicle. Front page article about Mexico's Cemex plant. There's a vestige of early 20th century industry, and apparently it is undermining a vast swath of pristine beach at Monterey Bay. The article by Peter Frimwright is about the Lapis Sand Plant. It's been in operation since 1906 and is, in fact, the nation's last coastal sand mine. It is believed to extract roughly 270,000 cubic yards of sand every year from a dredging pond on the beach. This is the equivalent of a large dump truck load every half hour, 24 hours a day. Notes the article, the eight-acre mine has been described by opponents, including politicians and surveyors, as medieval and outrageous. And some studies have linked it to severe erosion on the southern Monterey shoreline. But a quirk in the law, wouldn't you know it, has allowed the plant to remain open 27 years after all the other sand dredges were ordered off the coast. In this case, the owner, Semex, based in Mexico, has positioned its dredge in an artificial lagoon just above the mean high tide line, which is the boundary between public and private land under the California Coastal Act. It is, therefore, outside the jurisdiction of the State Lands Commission and the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, which can regulate industry in the surf zone. Anyway, we don't have time to go over the whole article today, but I do certainly suggest to your listener that you check this out. The piece notes that Semex does not disclose how much sand it takes from the beach, but some believe the company have increased production over the years to approximate the same amount that all six companies together were mining just three decades ago. The Coastal Commission's been notified by concerned people, and they said they're taking the matter up, but they haven't scheduled any hearings. Justin Burr, an enforcement analyst from the commission, says, it's a top priority of our commission to find a solution here. Adding, we've been talking with Semex for some time, but we'll continue to talk to them and see if we can resolve all the issues through a consensual resolution. The article does pose the question of how can agency as powerful as the Coastal Commission, which takes you to the wall when you want to put rocks on your property, are powerless to stop the biggest, most damaging operation on the coast. By the way, sacks of Lapis Luster, the brand name it goes under, advertised as clean, graded, and kiln-dried, are available at your local Home Depot. (laughs) 50 pounds of Monterey sand can be purchased for $4.40. I'm horrified to realize I may have bought some myself. Anyway, it's no secret we're we're big fans of investigative journalists on this program. We really uh, take our hat off to the producers of Water and Power, a California heist. We certainly encourage producer Marina Zenovich to continue producing documentaries like this in the future. This might be a good time to take a look at bogus investigative journalists. <laughs> and the guy that I have in mind is Edward J. Epstein. Epstein currently has a book out about Edward Snowden. It's titled How America Lost Its Secrets, Edward Snowden, The Man and the Theft. It should be noted that Mr. Epstein, who began his long career by questioning the standard account of President Kennedy's assassination, he wrote the book Inquest back in 1966 or so, wants readers to conclude that Edward Snowden, at one point or another, sold out to Russia, delivering valuable secrets in exchange for the asylum he currently enjoys. In a review in the New York Times, Nicholas Lehman points out that unfortunately Epstein proves none of this. Writing in the New York Review of Books, Charlie Savage said, Epstein's reporting on the facts can't be trusted. He wants readers to believe that Snowden, after meeting in Hong Kong with two journalists to whom he entrusted the most famous NSA files, carried a larger cache of unrelated secrets to Moscow. But the author's evidence for this is far flimsier than the counter-evidence. 
He ignores testimony from a Hong Kong lawyer who says he witnessed Snowden destroying his hard drive before departing the city. Such examples of reporting bias abound, said the New York Review of Books, and they undercut any good Epstein's book otherwise might have achieved. Noting that when a nonfiction writer reaches the limits of discoverable fact, he's supposed to stop, not fill in whatever gaps exist with his imagination. By the way, Epstein's book back in 1966 is not very good. He goes so far as to point out that the Warren Commission may have been a bit sloppy and maybe didn't do a thorough job, but doesn't go any further than that. And he should, because a lot more could be said, and a lot more has been said since, since then. In later years, Epstein wrote a book about Lee Harvey Oswald titled Legend, legend being the term for a uh, biography about someone made up by spy agencies, and that's probably a, a good description of the book, something made up by the spy agencies. This correspondent once had a chance to have a margarita with filmmaker Oliver Stone, whose JFK we admire very much, and when the name Edward Epstein came up, Stone just laughed, noting that, you know, he does do good work for certain other people. Which at Radio Parallax, we would hasten to add, seems to be what he's doing uh, about Edward Snowden, creating a legend. All right, final quick item. We noted earlier in the program the passing of David Lamb, an author we admire a great deal. And sadly, we would have to add to that, in our obituary column, that of Joseph Wapner, the judge who presided over the People's Court. You will find our interview with Judge Wapner in our archives. He subsequently wrote a book about how to deal in small claims court, and we thought it was uh, a worthy effort. Judge Wapner at one point was, without a doubt, America's most famous judge. A 1989 survey found that while two-thirds of Americans couldn't name a single Supreme Court justice, 54% could, in fact, identify Wapner. The Week magazine noted that although Wapner realized people watched his show as entertainment, he was proud to have made the legal system more understandable for ordinary Americans. He said, people think I'm kind and considerate, that I listen and evaluate and give each party a chance to talk. The public's perception of judges seems to be improving because of what I'm doing, and that makes me happy. That about does it for the show, which was produced by Edward McMillan. Our thanks once again to Marina Zenovich and Adam Keats for talking to us about Water and Power, a California heist. And we'll air on the Nat Geo channel on March 14th at 9 p.m. I'm Douglas Everett. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. We'll see you next week at the same time.